This is Philosophy for the People, where me and Ben talk about the weekly essays that Ben puts out in the Substack. And this week, we're going to be talking about his take <laughs> on MAGA communism, which comes after he debated Has this week on Wednesday or something. Uh, Wednesday, yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, the uh, I was planning originally uh, doing a follow-up this week to the essay I wrote last week that I know we haven't talked about yet on uh, uh, Hitchens versus William Lane Craig. Um, and I am going to do that next Sunday, uh, but um, and should also sneak in here somewhere that all of this can be found at benburgess.substack.com. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I had a very strange debate on, on Wednesday with this guy has, uh, who, uh, I always want to say has, but I think that's saying the a softer than it's supposed to be. Maybe I'm not sure. Uh, in any case, that case, that guy for red, uh, let's, uh, let's call him that, uh, who actually infrared is a collective. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's right. like, uh, we'll just we'll just see if I'm seeing uh, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, and so I had that on, on Wednesday, and I was thinking about you know because in, in preparation for for that debate, which like you know I should uh, without TMI in this, I should also say for various personal reasons, I've been taking some time off from most things, and I had a. Uh, and, but I'd like agreed to this before all that happened, and I almost didn't do it. I said like, no, but I just I don't want to I don't want to cancel out it after I already agreed to it. Um, and it was a very strange experience for many reasons we could get into. But in the um, but in the lead up to it, I had read this very long Substack essay that he wrote uh, called "The Rise of Mega Communism," uh, and. You know, there's some stuff that he says in the uh, Substack that I was kind of hoping would come up in the debate, and it never really did. And I was thinking about some of the stuff that did come up in the debate, and I decided that I wanted to to shove off Hitchens Craig part two for a week and uh, and write about this. And and I know, like, I, I actually saw somebody in the chat kind of saying, you know, why why bother with this, which is which I actually think is a fair question, right? Usually, usually I would, you know, when I do a debate. I'd be like, yeah, obviously, right? We need to get, you know, socialist ideas out there for people who aren't exposed to them, who are in other media bubbles, et cetera. Uh, I do kind of admit in this essay that it's like this a little bit of a strange thing to agree to do because this is like really stretching the outer limits, I think, of uh, the sort of case that I usually make for why this I mean, is valuable. I mean, it got 35,000 views across the three channels. I think that's a pretty good argument. Yeah, so, which is, uh, right, yeah, Modern Day Debate and then the GTAA and Infrared, I guess. Yeah, okay, so that's, that. yeah, I mean, and so, like, and I think there is something to be said for that, um, you know, part of the, you know, so the not, the subject of the debate and the subject of the Substack essay today is Haas's political theory that he calls MAGA communism, which, you know, I remember when this, he and uh, Jackson Hinkle, I suppose, is the Ingalls to his marks on this one, uh, is uh, that they, when they first formulated this and it like trended on Twitter for a day, I remember talking about it with our mutual friend, Jason Miles. And I, I think my comment at the time was like, this just kind of seems like political, 
like refrigerator magnet poetry to me. Like you can just sort of shove words together, but like what is that? I, mean, I, I found it. I found it interesting at time because I was. I'm in a group chat with one person who's a former Has fan and one person who's a current Has fan, um, and so I kind of he he was going through at the, at the time like a rapid period of renaming. Just yeah, before, yeah. for like a couple of weeks, they've been calling themselves Mecha Tankies. Um, to kind of communicate kind of a, a futurist kind of mechanized tanky vision. Um, but that, I mean, it's a bit shit. And so he, when he came out with MAGA communism, I was like, that's like, I think that's good branding. Like the only problem yeah. is the, the second A, um, like MAG communism, make America great communism. I think, I think that's good branding. But obviously it wasn't like some kind of, seemingly it's not like at least directly or explicitly some kind of detourment of uh, MAGA in in sense of kind of exploiting this term, which I think has a lot of power for other ends, but actually seems to be, comes along with some kind of uh, actual argument that actually the Republicans are better than the Democrats or whatever. Yeah, so this is part of my justification for bothering with this at all is that, you know, because like, look, the average... uh, MAGA person and for you know viewers outside of our uh, my uh, strange and increasingly difficult to follow homeland uh, the you know make America great again uh, which is um, which is actually a slogan that Trump himself appropriated from uh, the 1980 uh, Reagan campaign um, in the essay embed like an old Reagan spot that use it but um, you know, but this is like kind of, yeah, this is a branded exercise for Donald Trump and um, and like very, very Trump-aligned politicians, people like, you know, if you think about like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates or people like that, right, the sort of uh, Republicans whose political identity is most Trump-based, uh, more or less. Uh, and, you know, the average... Republican who gets really excited about the MAGA branded, I think um, if, you know, I think if you tell them you're a MAGA communist, you know, they'll, the absolute best case scenario is they'll start walking away from slowly. Uh, like that's because this is sort of, they, I think, correctly understand that to be the, uh, the polar opposite of what they think, you know, but part of, you know, part of my justification for you know, kind of age you with this at all, right? Is that, okay, the bank of communism thing is a sort of uh, strange and silly version of maybe something that seems much more widespread to me. And the more widespread thing is this idea that there's some sort of political convergence or realignment that, uh, that makes like traditional uh, left-right dichotomies sort of... Um, outdated because because the real thing now is uh uh the is like the establishment which is like the libs and the never trumpers uh versus this sort of some sort of vaguely populist versus like a hundred congressmen many billionaires <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly right that's the uh yeah like the the populist insurgents like peter Thiel. And uh, you know, uh, and Donald Trump himself, and all these congressmen, uh, many of whom are themselves, you know, uh, at least millionaires, and uh, 
all of the people who are like actually like you know i mean really if you if you you know not to be too uh ad hobbish about this if you like outside and talk to some people you know the uh the, the people you'll find who are like the most into the mega branded who are like you know small business owners who you know are uh, are often like the the sort of real kind of core of this at a grassroots level um that it's like those people right who are like the real insurgents and like they're and you'll find a lot of people uh who will say a lot of people who are much more uh mainstream than has who will say that it's like well because really these you know these plucky insurgents you know like peter Thiel uh are uh, they're they're populists uh, about you know you know they don't like corporate America and, uh, and big pharma and they're they're anti-war right that's part of it they're anti-war and uh, so part of the case that I wanted to make and I thought it would be you know again part of my excuse for doing this in the first place is like I thought it'd be interesting to have this argument with somebody who you know theoretically is some kind of Marxist so there's like shared premises I wouldn't normally have in this argument. Um, that, uh, you know, this, this sort of core case I wanted to make is like all of that is just absolute nonsense, right? There's, there's no, um, like, you know, the flag of Trumpism, right, which is, which is what MAGA stands for, uh, is, you know, like trying to associate that flag with any sort of like pro-worker or anti-imperial policy, you know, is just uh, nonsense on stilts, right? If you actually look into... Um, like the stuff that Donald Trump did, uh, then you know, he he was uh, he was a giant hawk, right? I mean, I mean he wasn't he war at all. I mean, he 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 uh, withdrew from the Iran deal, assassinated Soleimani, moved to the U.S. embassy in Israel to to Jerusalem. Uh, uh, you know, he had uh, like he <laughs> um, the, the the story where he killed Soleimani was so funny because. Obviously, like he he orders the the death of Soleimani, and then right. basically Iran gets like implicit permission to then bomb a U.S. military base in response, and then Trump asks the Iranians if he can like bomb like an empty beach of theirs in Iran to like tit for tat back, and they're just like no. <laughs> uh... Well, he was said like because originally didn't he didn't he say he was gonna like bomb like dozens of uh, he was gonna like intentionally bomb like holy sites in Iran and uh, and presumably somebody was like yeah maybe don't do that right that's that's probably gonna go to place right and, and then obviously lives were like he's admitting to doing war crimes on Twitter we're gonna arrest him right now it's gonna happen it's like oh yeah yes. Yeah, uh, sure. Right. I mean, I always thought like there's something really funny about like all the people who uh, like sort of watch MSNBC all day who are always like, you know, why hasn't Trump been arrested yet for this or that or the other thing? It's like, well, so this is like the only person with a significant amount of political power in American history who you think is going to face some sort of legal consequence for something, right? I mean, like this. I mean, I, I guess it didn't happen and a thousand of the thousand previous cases, but you know, now's the one, right? You know, this is the this is the time, right? He's gonna he's well, gonna I mean, it, it happened to anti establishment and and needy nuclear war cause uh, Richard Nixon. Yes. So this is uh so this is one of the funny things about this. So in the so in the debate itself, uh I talked about you know, I talked about Donald Trump's 
um, you know, actual record as, you know, I think actually kind of a crazy warmonger in foreign policy and, and as a, somebody whose domestic economic policies were, you know, someone just, who killed a lot of communists. Yeah. Just, just, uh, you know, so anyway, so like I, I talked about Trump's record and, and Haas said, well, okay, but like MAGA is counter hegemonic and, uh, which part of what he explained, what he meant about that is that they hear, hear all these establishment forces that MAGA people see as their enemies. And like one of them was the media. And I was like, well, hold on. If, uh, if the, uh, the liberal, like if just like ranting about the liberal media is enough to make counter hegemonic, right. Then like, you know, Nixon. Was counter have forget Trump Nixon was counter hegemonic. Uh, uh, but Ben, you, you didn't know you didn't know the law, and he was like, "Yes, of course." <laughs> yes. So this is the thing that he was like, "Yes, you know, you're taking this as a like reductio ad absurdum." But no, it, Nixon was counter hegemonic. That's why the CIA did Watergate, and which is the point where you know, since I'm only human, I started to laugh, and you know, and, and he got mad. But the uh, but like. Um, so this is new to me, and you have an advantage over me here, because I have to say, like, my previous Haas experience before this debate was I had watched one of his previous debates. Uh, it was the one with, uh, it was the one with um, uh, him and Henkel debating uh, Destiny and Dylan Burns about the, uh, the war in Ukraine, and uh, he... Uh, he absolutely loses his shit in, in that debate, like to a point where when he said he wanted to do this one with me, there was all this negotiation in advance about the format and stuff that he kind of made a couple references to, which were ba- which was all basically me being like, I don't want to sit through this if this is what this is going to be like, right? <laughs> like I saw I saw one version of what this could be like. If this is going to be like that, I'm out, right? Um, conversation's over if it starts to be like this. He kind of made a couple of references to that. And if you watch the debate I did Wednesday, but in, um, so I'd watch that one where he's like, sort of, you know, he's defending the justice of, of uh, invading Ukraine uh, as, you know, denazification and, you know, whatever else. Right. Uh, which, uh, uh, you know, it is also, by the way, just, you know, footnote to this, like, I think one of the crazier things about this debate uh, that I did with him was in the Q and A. Somebody asked basically for him to list off some of his favorite, you know, where each of us tried to list off some of our favorite, you know, world leaders, and uh, uh, and uh, one of his was was Putin, which you know I think is like pretty amazing for anybody who calls himself a communist because I mean this is this guy is like Vladimir Putin was literally the handpicked successor to Boris Yeltsin, I mean he is the he is the direct heir of the people who uh, who destroyed the Soviet Union and. Uh, you know, uh, raped the corpse and stripped it for valuables. Um, but uh, in any case, um, so he's in that debate, you know, he's he's going, he's both defending Putin and Putin's war in Ukraine, and then he's also um, just screaming insults a lot, right? So that's, that's like it. Uh, I was, um, so I, I saw that, I read this Substack post on mega communism, and uh, I watched. I was actually at a, at a conference once in in person that he was at, and I watched like a couple minutes in person of a panel he was on. And honestly, it was kind of too painful to to watch because I didn't realize he, he like went out and did panels. Yeah, uh, it was uh, um, honestly, I 
I mean, I know what this sounds like coming from me, but like I've been completely like literal about this. I felt embarrassed for him because he he was arguing. That was also with with uh, He was arguing about uh, like it was like the subject of the panel was like, is the Biden administration a success so far or something like that? And like in the and it is it was like a real dumb thing anyway. But you know they have a uh, and uh, when um, and he was arguing what would have been my side of, of that, right? You know, had, had I been on it, right? Which is the Biden sucks side. And in the, but in the course of it, like I remember him saying something like, well, you know, it's the economy, whatever. And Desti, I think was like, well, okay. But like, what do you think you should do about the economy specifically? And he was like, I should get with the economics people and figure out a plan or something like that. It's like, oh, you literally have no idea what you wanted to do. And I started to just like, I think he was, very cringy and embarrassing like i actually had to get up and leave it so it's like this you, is my these are my about, opinions more or less about, you about, about, you about socialism in the debate him, him trying to him like challenging him to a fight and that he didn't want to but like so that that's what i uh that's what i know about this guy but you actually know some stuff about him so like you you already knew that he thought that uh richard nixon uh, to the right. surprise so you, of, of you, many millions of surviving family members of dead communists in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia is uh, is was an enemy of like American imperialism or something. You, you put these up as kind of like the, the the dankest has takes, but these are all pretty kind of like surface level ones. Um, especially especially kind of I mean five is like an essential kind of basic point. But the, the real has takes are like, well, the, the big one is that we're already living in socialism and have been since oh. like the early 20th century. Now, basically, the oh, bourgeoisie sure. ended the like anarchy of production at the start of the 20th century. Um, huh. And since then, kind of, we've lived in like through the state or whatever, like um, production has been socialized, but it's been controlled by like a small elite at the top and so on. So there isn't kind of um, capitalism in the sense of an anarchy of production of actual strong competition based around profit and that kind of thing. Um, but there's other stuff, you know, like dinosaurs aren't real. Um, genes. Genetics. Uh, well, the dinosaur, dinosaurs aren't real thing is like, it's kind of like a, an almost ironic take that basically like we shouldn't talk about things which we don't have kind of like empirical historical access to. And that dinosaurs happened so long ago, it's kind of just like live bullshit that they want you to talk about. But that links into a major, a more major theory of his, which is um, believing anabiotic oil theory. I, I don't know what this is. Uh, well, there was kind of like a, a theory which some oil companies got scientists to make up in the 1960s, which basically argues that oil is produced by bacteria who live deep down in the crust um, so that we have... We have we have infinite oil basically, and we shouldn't worry about anything like that. And that links to basically the idea of um, th this is because this is argued for the sake of of believing that Earth is like a cornucopia, um, right. that we can we continue we can continually maximize production. And there's obviously at this level you're like, how much is this actually believed, and how much is it is it rhetorical? But yeah, on the genetics things. They support um, this this the Soviet uh, crop scientist this this thing here, like the, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah the Lamarckist guy. All right, 
Uh, so yeah, that's that's like the the real the real deep stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, I so I was just surprised by uh, yeah. So what was on that list? That was okay. So uh, Nixon was counter hegemonic. So the CIA did Watergate. Uh, I guess I'm not totally clear on whether the CIA faked the break in or they just like saw to it that it brought down Nixon, but, um, <laughs> someone, but, someone in tanky, someone called tanky bot said in the chat, these are all memes. Well, apart from the jeans one, that's real. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, yeah, it seemed to be serious about the Nixon thing. Uh, which is amazing. Cause again, like, uh, if you, you know, especially from, I mean, you know, especially from that kind of, uh, Look, you want to be a tanky, you know. You want to defend, you know, actually existing socialist regimes. It's like, the, uh, it's like Richard Nixon, you know, has killed millions of people in an attempt to crush uh, the formation of uh, actually existing socialist regime in Vietnam. Uh, I mean, the, but the real, the real hot take is that Nixon was a Maoist, and so he's bad because he's a Maoist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah, he sided with Mao against the Soviet Union. Yeah, no, that would be the that would be the top tier hot take. Uh, the um, but although it's actually not too far something that Haas said, which was that the uh, that he Trump is chaotic and he's a Maoist, and uh, and and Mao said chaos is good, so he likes Trump. That's I think that's I think it's a better argument than actually kind of anything which actually favors um, Trump. <laughs> But do you want to talk about, um, which I think is an interesting thing, which it has is at least mostly wrong about, but I think it's worth kind of talking about and is, I don't know, maybe his take is actually less wrong than what a lot of other leftists have, which is kind of around this thing of service workers. Yeah. Um, so this is something that came up in the debate. So basically, you know, like the first of the essay is just kind of me um, going through the kind of basic core of the issue about like, okay, is there really this kind of realignment? You know, does this make any sense at all? Is mega just, uh, you know, a, uh, what I think it is, which is just a very shallow rhetorical exercise and rebranded very standard Republican politics. Um, so that's, you know, that's like kind of the first chunk Cause that was like the sort of main case I was making in the, uh, the date itself. And then the, and then I sort of go into a couple of, you know, if that was all it was, I wouldn't have put this on the philosophy substack. Um, that, you know, like the main kind of part of the essay is going into two more sort of interesting theoretical questions that come up around all this. One is, you know, I guess we can do after is something he's, he said on his original Rise of Mag and Communism substack. And then the one uh, before that is that you just asked about is his take on service workers. And both of these, I think, are pretty badly misconstruing arguments that Marx makes in Capital. So um, on service workers, um, you know, the way all this comes up in the first place is that, uh, is that, um, you know, I, in sort of talking about how bad and reactionary Trump and mega Republicans are, um, I talked about the way that Trump's uh, NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, which I think tellingly has didn't seem to, that didn't seem to be in his vocabulary. I think he said the acronym wrong a couple of times in the debate, um, which I, I only bring up. I know it's petty just because it's like, 
I, I think it shows really just not the kind of issue, right? That he, he'd think about in the normal course of things. Um, but, um, you know, Trump's NLRB, you know, made a series like was full of like hardcore union busters and made like a series of incredibly hostile decisions that, you know, made it much harder to organize unions and like as, as bad as Biden is and as bad as like the uh, imposing the deal on the rail workers is and all that stuff. Um, it's, you know, it would have been much harder for like, you know, the example I gave is this recent massive wave of like hundreds of Starbucks uh, being, or, you know, organized to happen under um, Trump's NLRB. And Paz's response to that, he's done a few things in response to it, uh, but the most sort of, you know, and some of them were just kind of boilerplate, frankly, internet right-wing things. But the most interesting thing that he said is what you're talking about, I think, which is we, he said, well, uh, you know, I don't really care essentially about Starbucks workers organizing. And he even extended this uh, by the end of the conversation to like any, you know, he's like McDonald's workers, whatever, right? You know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want uh, any of them organizing unions. At the very least, he doesn't care about it. Sometimes he said he didn't care. Sometimes he seemed to be going further than that and said it was actually actively a bad thing for various reasons. But he, uh, because the essential point is that he thinks that service workers aren't really part of uh, of the working class, uh, or if they are, they're not like the sort of important or politically supportable part of the working class or something like that, right? Uh, and all of this is based on his reading of a couple of things that Marx says in, in Capital. And I guess I want to sort of just to be scrupulously fair about this and then say like, okay, here's the, here's the stuff he's putting together that's not totally wrong, right? So um, that, um, so when Marx talks about the labor process in Capital, he's spending a lot, he talks a lot about um, sort of taking what we get from nature and transforming it into human use values. Um, so you know, not that like, you know, whatever, you, you just think about like, you know, you, you know, miners mine something that, you know, then gets processed into something that blah, 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 right? You know, 20 steps later, right? Becomes a car. Uh, that's, um, you know, that's like an example of that. Um, and, and this is, you know, he's Marx is like very interested in this, not just for his analysis of capital, but also just his sort of general analysis of how production works in any society. That and it has a lot to do with his sort of overall theory of of the uh, stages of history and uh, how different modes of production rise and fall uh, over um, over the course of economic and hence political uh, history, and um, and so related to this. Uh, Marx does make a distinction in some places. And it's, you know, to be fair, I think it's not always totally clear in Marx how the distinction is being drawn, right? Like, is there are sort of scattered things you have to look at and try to put together about productive versus non-productive labor. Uh, so in other words, um, there's labor where that would have to happen regardless of how society was organized in order to convert what we get in nature into human use values. And then there's labor that's like, not necessary in that sense, right? It's like it's like just sort of an artifact of the way that society is organized under capitalism, for example. But like in a different kind of society, it uh, it wouldn't exist. So it's like a sort of um, 
you know, if you're, um, it's, you know, I don't know, like a sort of, I remember uh, G.A. Cohen and Karl Marx's theory of history has a nice example about this, about like, if you have like a, uh, some slaves on a farm, uh, if there's a, the like actual agricultural tools, the, you know, the, uh, the slaves are using are productive, but like the wall that they build to stop the slaves from escaping, right? Is it because it's something that's only necessary because of a specific way that the, uh, that uh, this mode of production works? Uh, not something that would be necessary for production to happen at all, um, at least given that level of development of technology, blah, blah, blah. Okay, all of which is to say, uh, if you think about those elements I just laid out, you can kind of see how Haas gets where he gets, because uh, he says, well, um, okay, manufacturing work is one thing, uh, you know, if you're, if you're making things, uh, but if you're, and presumably he'd also throw in like extraction, like the example about the miners and et cetera. Uh, but if you're just doing service work, well, that's not, uh, you know, then you're not making things, therefore, um, uh, therefore you're, um, you're not a productive worker, which he seems to kind of equate with like not being part of the working class, or at least not being part of, I don't know, the part of the working class that could potentially be engaged in struggle at the workplace that has like, that's going to matter for social strategy or something like that. Um, and what I would say is that every, and, you know, to give him also to completely give him his due, I think Mark's a little bit, um, you know, maybe not 100% consistent or clear, you know, certainly if you compare some of the things he says in volume one of Capital, which is the only one that Marx actually finished and polished and all that stuff in his lifetime with like some of the unpublished notebooks that Matt is, you know, two and three and Gundry said, you know, things that he wrote elsewhere and things he said in letters or whatever. If you sort of start to put all this together, it's not totally clear that everything that Marx says about this fits together. Um, you know, he mentioned a comment about clerks Capital Volume Two. Although I think there's also a place where Marx very explicitly says that like teachers are productive workers, uh, which is you know uh, that yeah, doesn't it's, matter. One my, it's one of my favorite passages of Capital because in those few few the, the few lines he gets across both the point that um, to be a worker you don't have to directly produce a commodity, and he very clearly goes against any valorization of the working class. It's where he says that being a worker is a curse. Yeah, well, that's the other thing, too, that I think Haas is getting wrong. So, okay, so I, let me just real quick run through, like, the... Because the, the, okay, the thing I, I do agree with Haas on is that um, Starbucks, service workers, etc., are not important workers. Depends what you buy important. I think that they... Uh, so so we, we'll definitely get to that. But, I mean, just, just to sort of, like, real quickly rehearse uh, what I think is... You know, what I think he's, he's getting wrong about Marx's argument in Capital, I think that... Um, Basically, two things. One, I think that um, Marx um, doesn't restrict the working class in the sense that matters for the class struggle to just productive workers. I think he very clearly doesn't do that. Um, and in fact, I think if you sort of understand the main things that Marx is saying, uh, they wouldn't make sense if he was doing that. And then two, also, what baristas do at Starbucks is very, very clearly and ambiguously productive work as Marx uses that phrase. Right, they make right? things. <laughs> yeah, they make things, right? Like this is, uh, like if you are 
you know, if you are grinding up coffee beans and straining hot water through them and foaming milk and all that stuff, then what are you doing? You are transforming materials derived from nature in order to meet human use values. If do, anything, you know, by the way. do you know who doesn't make things? Uh, Truckers. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true, right? Uh, and like, you know, now I actually think um, if you look at some of Marx's comments about this, I think Marx uses the term production so capaciously truckers might even count but like they have a uh, but um right like obviously in, in the end truckers and railway men and whatever obviously do contribute to the general profit making in capitalism right yeah yeah exactly so it's like I think that they, tenuous labor right they're they're necessary yeah um so um so yeah i mean mark's says like has this really interesting comment in capital about how the fish in the ocean are part of the fisherman's means of production uh you know and, and like you know all the fisherman is producing in any immediate sense is like he's transforming fish in water to fish on land uh, that then later you know further transformations you know uh you know gut them and grill them and you know, whatever, or, you know... I mean, now people, people are, are reacting kind of in chat as if I've now said because of that, that truckers aren't, I said, like, <laughs> completely important workers. But no, my point is, is exactly to take out these things, that baristas directly produce commodities, but yeah. I don't think they're important and a vital part of, of a revolutionary class. But truckers don't directly produce commodities, but I think are an absolutely an essential part of any revolutionary class. Yeah, so, so I think I might know what you mean, but but just to, just to be really clear, could, do you want to kind of lay out your mean? Well, 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 basically, you know, service workers, yeah. if they stopped working in a capitalist society, right, yep. At least most of them, you know, 90% of service workers went on strike, 90% of everything would be fine. Yeah. If, if uh, truckers yeah. and railwaymen and and, yeah. and workers permanently went on strike, they would all collapse, including the service industries. Right, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think there's a sense in which that's right. I think that there's a that like I think some sectors are more strategically important than others uh, because of the size, right? Like the number of the number of workers involved because of the sort of centrality to, you know, like the, the kind of like what you can like actually, you know, and it's funny, like here, like too, you can make distinctions that are very much within what you would typically think of as like uh, kind of core, uh, you know, like uh, worker jobs, because it's like, honestly, if you're in, um, you know, if, if uh, you know, if you're in the, um, Say you know, I don't know. They have a. Uh, it's what's uh, you know, if you're you know, if you're producing raisin bran, right? You're at the raisin bran factory in uh, uh, Battle Creek in uh, in Michigan, and you go on strike. Well, you know, eventually that'll mean there, there's a shortage of raisin bran at the store. And that's that's that's. Right. Know, and the other point I was going to make that this is going to cause a certain shortage, but I was just going to say like. You know who has a hell of a lot more strategic power than than uh, than workers in the raisin bran manufacturing uh, factory is like Longshore, right? Like that they uh, that like you could like actually you know actually stop global trade from going on. I mean, like that that has like massively more disruptive effect, or like or like rail workers, right? I mean, that's why that's why Biden you know stopped them from from uh, from going on strike. You know that they have a uh, that like a 
a rail strike would have had immediately disruptive effects in ways that even lots of uh, core manufacturing uh, work wouldn't necessarily, right, depending on but specifics. It, it's, kind of, it's absolutely essential for kind of MAGA communists and all kind of conservative socialists for whatever reason. They feel a complete need to, to valorize uh, factory workers completely. But of course, not. it's not just... Like the thing with factory workers is a massive percentage of them are now committed in their labor to making absolute fucking tat. So much of the work which currently goes on in factories all across the world in China and elsewhere is, is not like not essential labor. Well, this is what I, it's the production of Garfield cats. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is, this is exactly the point that I made in the, in the article that it's like um, that there's this sort of confusion of, I think that he's got going on between this sort of productive, non-productive category from capital and, uh, and then uh, these two other issues, which are uh, you've both alluded to, right. Which are one, like whether uh, in a different sort of society would continue to, to have a certain sort of labor. Uh, and then also whether it's like sort of, innately dignified or fulfilling or something like that. And I think both of those are complete, you know, all three of those are totally separate issues and, uh, and none of them really have anything to do with, uh, with why it's important to have an organized working class, very much important, including the kind of work that the vast majority of American workers do, right. Which is, which, you know, would sort of be clumped under this not very clear, or precise category of service work, which includes lots of making stuff. Uh, so, um, so really, you know, quickly on that, I think you know, like the thing that I am emphasizing there is, you know, like there's this distinction that sort of sounds very uh, nitpicky and pedantic, right? That you'll sometimes run into if you see people arguing about this stuff about labor and labor power, and uh, and I think it is actually an important one. Uh, that they have a, so, um, you know, labor, right, is the stuff you're doing, right? Labor power capacity to do stuff. And in capital, Marx's analysis is that the thing that workers are selling in capitalist labor markets, right, the thing they're selling to employers is their labor power, right? In other words, what they're uh, sort of, uh, if your way of saying that is what they're selling is their time, right? And they're, um, that, and in fact, if you, you know, if you read Capital, you really read it, the uh, Marx's analysis of exploitation, which, you know, uh, is, there's certainly a form of that that he's talking about in terms of extracting surplus value. Uh, there are places where he does seem to be talking about extracting literal money, right, which is, of course, different than value, you know, et cetera. But, like, uh, but Marx's overwhelming emphasis um in that book is really about the extraction of surplus time that they, that uh, you'd have to, you know, people would have to, there's like, like there's the nature imposed necessity that certain amount of life uh, turning, uh, turning what you get from nature into human use values. So you can have the use values at the end, but the, um, but then there's a social system imposed necessity to spend these extra hours working to enrich, depending on what kind of system we're talking about, slave owners or feudal lords or modern capitalists. And that's really what Marx is laser focused on, which I think is important for two reasons. One is that even if Starbucks workers were productive in Marx's sense, which they absolutely are not, uh, they, uh, they, in fact, 
you know, the number of links in the chain separating the immediate differences of nature from what year the material's being transformed behind the counter at Starbucks is actually way less than the number of links in the chain involved in the materials you're transforming if you're like on an assembly line at an auto plant. Uh, but, um, but even if they were not, you know, do mostly doing not productive tasks, that's not really the point, right? I mean, the point is that the working class is the segment of the population that whose, you know, economic circumstances give them no realistic option except for to sell their labor time to to a capitalist. That's the essential thing that they uh, right. that they have. The which owns nothing and does everything. Yeah, exactly, right? And it's like whether the specific task that the, you know that your capitalist has directed you to do during any particular working hour is productive or non-productive is sort of beside the point, right? I mean, it's like whether it's like, you know, you spend the whole time working behind the cash register at Starbucks, which would be non-productive, or you spend the whole time, you know, uh, grinding, uh, you know, grinding coffee beans and brewing espresso, which is productive. I mean, for, from, from reading chat, I've I've got maybe the impression that I'm wrong, and that if <laughs> if if service service workers went on strike in the U.S., no one would learn how to make a coffee at home, and all Americans. Would be- <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I hope this is tested soon. Uh, but, uh, uh, but in case, um, I've got, and it's also like, it's also very importantly, and I really like your point about that passage about the teachers. It's also very importantly, just totally alien to the spirit of what Marx is doing in capital to say, oh, the productive work is like good, dignified work, right? You know, that's great. You know, you shouldn't want to work at, you know, Starbucks because that's like, bad and undignified, but like working in a factory is great, which by the way, I just want to say parenthetically, look, I don't, you know. It, it ruins uh, your body and your mind. Well, I mean, yeah, so I, I, I mean, like I've, I've known people pretty well who have worked at factories and, uh, you know, zero of them have had that take on it. Right. You know, like that's like, oh yeah, I really wish I could have spent a couple more decades you know, in, uh, in that factory, right? Like, yeah, it ruins your body, it ruins your mind. You're doing mind-numbing, repetitive tasks all day, every day, uh, often in, you know, uh, in noisy, you know, conditions and, you know, often dangerous conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and Mark says, I mean, like there's this face, you know, in, you know, the notebooks that got, trans, you know, Ingalls edited into uh, volume three, uh, there's this famous passage where, you know, Mark's, is like to paraphrase, you know, it's the thing about the realm of necessity and the realm of freedom, where he's, you know, to paraphrase lightly, right? I mean, he, he says, look, uh, it's really important that we, you know, like, yes, absolutely, let's achieve the society of associated producers where there's workers control means of production, but like, just because you're working in a worker controlled factory doesn't suddenly love working in a factory, right? The, the, uh, the realm of freedom is like you're entering into to the extent that you can minimize Right, the the number of hours a day that you're uh, that you're you you have to spend just grinding to to meet your your daily needs. I mean, this is the ultimate you know the ultimate sort of dream in, uh, about advanced stage communism, in particular the Gotha program. You know, is is that you can have you know a society where um, you know automation under conditions of collective ownership and um, and you know, various cultural changes he thinks are going to happen and all this stuff combined to produce this effect where, where you don't have to link people's subsistence to work anymore. That people will just sort of, you know, do what interests them and um, 
you know, maybe like, you know, maybe so much is automated that like, you know, if like, look, some people's interests take them to spend their time writing poetry and some people's interests, you know, they, you know, do this or that. And the other thing, some people's interests drive them to become, you know, computer engineers. And they're like enough of those people, you know, that the, uh, that stuff, stuff gets made and everybody can just kind of take what they need. Right. This is, you know, we can argue about the level of like realism of that or, you know, how much of that is going to come to pass or whatever. Although I think it's a, useful regulative ideal regardless but it's like um but like this is what makes marx tick i mean there's there's like going all the way back to like the economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844 you know there's this you know this wonderful passage in there where he's talking about how um he's like deploring the fact that in capitalist society you know it's like people are encouraged to you know to like spend their entire lives on their you know, economic lives. So I'd, I'd, I'd work to meet their needs. And he talks about like how this takes away from everything that makes us human. And it's like a very, it's a very, um, you know, it's a very like Bohemian stu- 1840 student revolutionary kind of kind of list of things that he rattles off. I mean, it's a culturally specific, but like it's, uh, it's like going to the theater and fencing and, you know, stuff like that, you know, but it's like, but it's like, yeah, that's what he, you know, I mean, Marx is not sitting around thinking, it's like, man, wouldn't it be amazing if we had a society where um, everybody could be like a stock divided in a, in a collectivized steel mill. And, you know, and that would be, you know, just like work constantly at the steel mill, right? I mean, that, that's kind of that's the opposite of the point. Right. I mean, the, the, the valor of the, of the factory worker, such as it exists, is kind of being concentrated together um, and, you know, seeing the sharp end of productive labor so that they can abolish this labor. Right, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think, no, exactly. I think the another important point, which I think gets disappeared by basically everyone in this sort of conversation, is that the proletariat being revolutionary isn't a premise right. of the argument, right? It's a conclusion. Uh, right. Like this is a conclusion that Marx comes to in analyzing the, the conditions of the proletariat at that time in history. It can be the fact that you can be proletarian and non revolutionary. Because it's a conclusion, not a premise, right? Um, sure, yeah. And so no, I think, that's, yeah. that, and I think that's kind of that. Lots of people run into into both things, where they'll, you know, they'll say Starbucks workers aren't revolutionary, therefore yeah. they aren't workers. Or they'll conversely say, well, Starbucks workers are obviously fucking workers; they make things. Thus, they're necessarily revolutionary. But neither, yeah. I mean, neither conclusion could be true. But sure, neither of them yeah. are necessarily true. Like it's not embedded in having your surplus labor extracted from you or whatever, or being dispossessed or being the, the class which labors and you know, something or blah, blah, blah. There's nothing in there that inherently makes you revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. No, that seems right. I mean, I've got like, I mean, I think that the, um, you know, the revolutionary potential of the working class is about having, um, you know, is about having, a set of class interests that points in that direction and uh, having the collective capacity to, um, to, to act on those interests, right? In other words, like that they have a, that like that the working class is positioned such that it can uh, change society. It has a power to that other groups, which are, you know, I mean, look, I mean, working class is not even the most, you know, I mean, if we're just talking about like oppression, like, like just, just, you know, just degrees of mistreatment, right? The, uh, the working class is not actually the most mistreated part of capitalist society. I mean, like this, this is, um, 
um, there are lots of people who are in a position below that who would fucking love to be in the working class, right? That would be that. Right, and, and then uh, various stupid leftists who spent like the last hundred years or so valorizing the lumpens. Because yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're missing the point because it's like it's not like you get morality points for being oppressed. It's that they have a. Uh, it's that you know the working class. What makes it distinctive? It's is it's an oppressed class that has um, that has this structural power to uh, to change society and has an interest in changing society in a certain direction and you know etc. That's like that's the uh, like that's the key. The key point, right? I mean, because it's like I mean, yeah, it's normally kind of a relatively privileged sector of the working class, which is the most revolutionary, which makes complete sense, right? Sure, it's, it's the people who have you know the money to go on strike. It's the people that have sufficient labor conditions that they can engage in union politics, that they can read these literature and so on. If you're being constantly, absolutely smashed, totally to bits in the labor process, yeah. then it's really hard to be revolutionary. Totally. You know, it's also, I also think there's something to be said for like, uh, you know, just that it's like, this is kind of what's, it's kind of the same thing that's like wrong with like accelerationism. Like, oh, if, if we, uh, you know, if we get the most reactionary faction of the capitalist class in power, then like people could be so, suffer so much that they'll be so mad, right? That they'll make a revolution, which like never actually seems to happen that way. You know, that it's like, uh, and it's like, well, no, I think there's something to be said for like, you know, if people are just like constantly experiencing defeats, you know, they, they don't usually draw like revolutionary conclusions from that, right? They, they have a, like, if they're, I mean, if anything, like if you're just constantly, you know, having your skull cracked, then like, you know, a little bit of relief from that will be taken as enough of a win. And like, you know, you're not going to want to jeopardize the, you know, a little relief and, you know, you'll have a, or like you'll just want to keep your head down and try to make a better deal for yourself and your family or whatever, right? Whereas like I, I mean, think often every every minor reform that the working class wins in capitalism um, furthers, I mean, makes worse or whatever the the profitability crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think that the and you know, and I I think that there's the um, like people tend to people who have actually won things. Uh, are more likely to believe that they can win more things in the future. People who've won things can, like, have, like, might actually be more willing to go to bat to preserve those things, you know, uh, and uh, to to feel to feel some kind of confidence. And I mean, like, this is the uh, um, in fact. Oftentimes, revolutions happen even in despotic regimes, like after there's been a certain amount of liberalization. You know, like there's a uh, just this idea that it's like sort of the more oppressed you are, you know, the more revolutionary your consciousness will be, I, I think is a very poor fit with most of the, um, you know, most of the the historical evidence, you know. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, so all of this has been about sort of um, what the working class is and why it's important, but that is this other issue that, you know, came up in the debate with Haas, or it didn't come up in the debate with Haas, it came up in his Substack, but he never quite got to it in the debate, which is actually, to my mind, even more important and sort of cuts more to the core of, like, what's wrong with this sort of attempt to combine these things. You know, it's like, oh, uh, here's this wonderful MAGA populist revolt against the, you know, the uh, the lib elites. Uh, I mean, so they, just, they, they did produce the funniest day in history. 
which is January 6th, of course. Oh, sure, sure, that sure, 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 sure. So fucking uh, funny. Yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, fair. Uh, so, yeah, it's like, okay, so obviously there's there's all this revolutionary potential from, like, the Q Shaman and all those people, right? So so let's combine it with communism. Uh, the, uh, the people... Like one thing I think that's, um, I think the thing that's like even more deeply wrong with that is related, right? But it's like different, which is that, um, which is that it's sort of, in order to make that work, to, even to the extent that Haas makes it work in the Substack post, I think you have to have <laughs> a, a kind of vision of the socialist project that sort of, weirdly takes out the class struggle part mm -hmm. um, because which kind of makes sense right because if you're going to sort of valorize all of these uh, you know reactionary nationalist projects right that like it, it kind of makes sense that you just want to talk about the people and in certain you know in certain contexts he's making class distinctions but in certain contexts he sort of like really seems to be working very hard to obscure class distinctions and um and he, you know, and he, he even says things I think I find really interesting about how, uh, well, and this sounds sort of very Marxy up until you get to the conclusion, you know, about how, look, capitalist, you know, private property isn't about, you know, you getting to keep your stuff. It's about the banks and BlackRock and everybody taking away your stuff. It's like I could, in a certain way, nod along with all of that, right? But then, like, he seems to then suggest that uh, actually, you know the uh, the mega communist uh, platform is is to let you keep your stuff and sure maybe you know private property the means of production will go away one day but that's going to be like history or the forces of production that are sort of doing that and like we're not trying to take anything away from you and when it would be taken away it would be under conditions where there wouldn't even be any opposition to it or something like that and all of which just seems bonkers to me because and I, and I think really misses. Like, um, like again, there's this part of that that's like very much like what Marx does say, capital. But there's this part of it that like could not be less like it, right? So, the part of it that's, um, you know, Marx certainly thinks the development of the forces of production over the course of history is what uh, is, in a certain sense, what drives, um, you know, what drives uh, changes in the mode of production. But that's because when you get a conflict between uh, the further development of the forces of production and the existing mode of production, that tends to be, in Marx's analysis, when you get successful revolutions, but you still need to do the revolution part. And in the, um, and, you know, and it is true, like in Capital, like this is actually the, the class that I've been teaching at Capital. We, we do um, the, uh, we're, we're just doing this part now, uh, you know, the, the, the final part of the book, uh, you know, he talks about, well, so-called primitive accumulation. It's not his phrase, but, you know, whatever. He, uh, uh, he's, he's talking about this, this massive process by which uh, capitalism was sort of born through the theft of things belonging to petty proprietors. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's sort of the, uh, the most, like, uh, gruesomely gripping part of the, the book. I, I have a you know, I, mean, I kind of throw a joke into the essay about how if Marx were trying to get like verse or sublation or somebody to publish Capital now, 
they'd probably make him move that to the beginning of the book, you know, to uh, to readers. But uh, but in any case, Nick, he, uh, Nick Land summarizes it in a few words where he talks about the um, the blood and shit stains of primitive accumulation. Yeah, that is very well put. Uh, the, uh, so uh, so yeah, so Marx does say all that, right? He does talk about this this massive process of. Of, of theft, you know, without a farthing of compensation, you know, that all of the, basically the immediate producers being, being separated by like real, like violence and bloodshed from uh, their traditional means of production, which was the land. Um, so that, you know, you know, feudal lords who are converting themselves into modern capitalists could more efficiently exploit that land so that the, so that those workers would then become a, a labor force that was desperate enough to take jobs in uh, the truly nightmarish conditions of early industrial revolution factories. Um, Marx says all that. He talks about that extensively. That's all true. But like the way that Haas presents all this in the Substack essay really seems to miss Marx's big conclusion, at, you know, which is like where the whole primitive accumulation section ends up right at the end of chapter 32, which is... Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I have mixed feelings about some of the ways which people sometimes use the word, but I think dialectical feels like the right way to put it here, right? Which is like, um, that it's like, yeah, yes, there is this like terrible crime that's been committed in the past, but the point is not that we're going to just reverse it and go back to the way that things were. Right. And right? that's very you know? interesting, I think, because Haz says, and I don't have any reason to, to not believe sure. him, is that apart from Dugan and Marx, one of his biggest influences is Nick Land. And I feel like with him, like talking about why he opposes the Democrats and the establishment and lots of even unions is, is to do with kind of Nick Land's concept of, of the cathedral, that these yeah. kind of forces are kind of slowing down, inhibiting capitalism and preventing us from getting to socialism. But that's, but then to then support the petty bourgeoisie to do exactly that, to slow down capitalism and blah, 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 and stop the, the process of accumulation. Is, is completely bizarre. And that's kind of what I find so interesting about kind of microcommunism, patriarch socialism, whatever, is that it's kind of an inversion. It's the opposite side. It's the opposite face of kind of the leftist tendency, several different leftist tendencies, one towards the valorization of the least revolutionary class, the lumpen, is, is met with the, the, the valorization of the other least revolutionary class, the petit bourgeoisie, um, yeah. kind of the, 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 the section of the left which valorizes the Democrats is met with a valorization yeah. of the Republicans. Yeah. And so kind of a lot of the sick tendencies of the left are then reflected with kind of in their opposite exact manner in, in this kind of movement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, like, yeah, I'm just trying to trying to make sure I got all that. I mean, I think that um, yeah, I, I you know, it's it's like a really important point that it's like what Marx is ultimately saying is that um, you know you don't. I mean, and it's funny, like because like there's in this part, right? I mean, lest anybody think that I'm I'm caricaturing this, I, I have I linked to his Substack a few times in the course of it. Uh, I you know it's thirteen thousand words. I don't blame you if you don't read the whole thing. But if you but if you sort of I, I misread it and thought you said thirteen hundred, and I was like, oh, that's short. But no, yeah, yeah, that's not too bad at all. Yeah, that's like a that's that's like on the that's on the like, my articles. Uh, yeah, 
Uh, yeah, so it's it's very long, but if you like sort of go bound to the, you know, you just do like a search in it for expropriate, right? You find the right paragraphs uh, from uh, from the uh, the essay, and, uh, and and he's like really out of going out of his way to say that no, no, we're not advocating you know the expropriation of anything. Like, sure, maybe you know private property means production will you know go away in the future when you know history is ready to deliver that or something like that, right? But it's like he says. But since socialist, you know, you know, mega communists, you know, we want more wealth, more prosperity, uh, that like this compatible with he says pro people policy is like cutting red tape and cutting taxes, which is also pretty funny while we're talking about capital. That like a big thing going on in uh, in capital is Marx's celebration of the great historic victory of the introduction of red tape to uh, to the the labor process, right? I mean, like like chapter ten. Uh, about the the working day. I mean, like at the end, he calls the Ted Hours Bill the uh, the Magna Carta of the working class. You know that this, um, you know, I mean, like he's celebrating the birth of the regulatory state. Um, and um, uh, and uh, you know, and it's it's like no, uh, the the point. You know, it's like yeah, you don't want to slow down. I mean, you know, not for. I mean, yeah, I don't know if it's exactly the same as the. Nick Land point, but like the, uh, but like Marx's point certainly is like, uh, is like, no, it's not like, you know, in fact, he says in the footnote at the end of that section, at the end of uh, chapter 32, like he's got a quote from what he and Ingalls say in the Communist Manifesto. Or, you know, let's be real about this, what he said in the Communist Manifesto. I think Ingalls kind of supported him and bought him brandy and cigars while he was writing it and, you know, put his name on it. But the, uh, but um, in, uh, in the, where he says uh, that um, that look, there's other classes, this, 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 these artisans, and small shopkeepers, and all these people, right? They they fight the, the bourgeoisie, but then they're not revolutionary class because they're not fighting it to try to move history forward, right? They're fighting it to try to turn the clock back, right? To to when they have more, right? And like what he says at the end of chapter thirty-two is they that you have like this gruesome and awful and criminal process of expropriation that he's documented over the centuries in England and Scotland uh, in those chapters is, um, you know, that that having been completed, that lays the groundwork for this much more positive kind of expropriation where that he does say, you know, could be much less violent and, and much shorter because instead of instead of a minority of society trying to expropriate the holdings of the great mass, it's the other way around. It's the great mass of society expropriating, you know, the holdings of, you know, small minority. And so that's like easier to do, right? It's a very hopeful, you know, revolutionary thing, but it's not like, you know, history with capital H or something about the abstract development of the forces of production or something is sort of, is sort of giving you this, this outcome. It's, it's still, it's still class struggle is, is, uh, is still delivering it, right? It's still at the, um, uh, it's it's just that the you know like this historical conditions are created that allow the working class to take away the uh, the, the holdings of the capitalist class, right? That's that's what you know that's what Marx is saying. But I mean, like, there's still a process by which at the end of this, right? The you know the workers are still you know like I mean, it's actually really weird, like especially for somebody who wants to you know be a tanky or mecha tanky or whatever, right? It's like they have a it's like you you want to it's like, come on, Dad! Like you, you want to valorize? Right. Real, real tankies want to shoot all those people. <laughs> exactly, right? It's like, yeah, come on! Like, are you are you a tanky or not? I mean, it's like I thought you would have, uh, 
you know, it's like these are, you know, you're supporting these revolutionary regimes that were, you know, built, you know, with blood and struggle. You know, they they have a uh, uh, like, and now like, where's all the squeamishness suddenly coming from? I mean, it's like you know, it's like you, now you're not even willing to take away people's property. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that Nick Land and gets wrong and maybe has is, yeah. is taking us up to some degree is that each I mentioned this before, but each kind of advance of the working class doesn't, I think, inhabit, inhibit kind of the, uh, the progress of capitalism. Um, because each each move in this way furthers, deepens the profitability crisis, forces capital to become increasingly, increasingly concentrated because only more and more concentrated capital in combination with the state can survive these increasingly large demands. And in face of a stronger working class, capital has to kind of become stronger and more organized and more centralized to fight back against the working class. And this all leads up to the point where we have something like Amazon, which we could, you know, kick in the door of, of, of Amazon, take the prices off, and, you know, we're 25% of the way to socialism. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, exactly, right? And it's like, it's, and this is, this is kind of, yeah, it's kind of Marx's point at the end of chapter 32 that, like, you have... Uh, that it's like, look, if you're, uh, you know, expropriated little mom and pop uh, bookstores, right, that's going to be like unpopular and involve a lot of, you know, a lot of like really bitter struggle. But like, you know, you can just kind of like, you know, if all you're doing is like, you know. I, I think this is, I, you know, parody not advocated uh, just, just, just for any policeman, you know, watching this. But it's like, if all you're doing is like dragging Jeff Bezos out to the town square and shooting him, right? It's like that, that it's like, everybody claps and you go home and call it a day. Yeah. And it's way too late in the video for us to talk about the PMC. Um, <laughs> it is, it is too late in the video for that. It's an interesting conversation. Well, I think, yes. I think what Kush said is, is very interesting. It's something I've been thinking about lately. If you read Nick Land in the nineties, uh, like, like meltdown and stuff like this, he has very well predicted the world as it was going to come to be in the 2020s. And, you know, it wasn't just that he's predicting it. He wanted these things to come to pass. Um, and the, and if very, very few writers in the 1990s wrote things which they wanted to happen, which then did. That's uh, true. <laughs> that, is a, that is probably, yeah, probably that, that, is, that says something pretty funny, but also kind of sad that you have to have that accelerationist thing to, to like have but, that combination. But the, the, the sad thing is Nick Land's future has come true and he hates it. <laughs> all, all, all that he does on, on Twitter is complain about the world that he envisioned coming to pass, which is just yeah, no, no one can be happy in this world. Fair enough. Ben, um, how how would you uh, reply to this? Sure. This is one of the comments on on the video of you and has. Ooh, um, I think that Lono. <laughs> Uh, I, I I no longer have a PhD to give you, but you could have one of the master's degrees. Because <laughs> this, this is a real innovation. Because I've called you Ben Berger, but I'd sure. never I'd never consider considered Venus Berger, and that that's a step forward in in Ben name production. No, that's true. That's true. That's uh, we. I don't think we can go back from that. Uh, once it's happened, it's happened. <laughs> I was laughing too hard to click the right comment. <laughs> oh god well that was fun yeah, we, it did, was. we didn't define socialism 
Uh, <laughs> do you want to do that at the last minute of the stream? No, not really, but we should have. But, you know, we can do Yeah, yeah. Fun. I mean, we, I, we, could, we could do, you could do a whole essay on socialism. Defining socialism. Actually, that's, that's not a bad idea. Uh, I, I mean, I'm just super orthodox, and I literally just take the definition that Lenin took from Marx uh, and, like, more or less quotes directly. But the thing is, by that, unlike everyone else, I don't mean country which is good. <laughs> various countries which I don't think are socialist, but which yeah, are good. There's also the, yeah, it's, that's the, that's uh, our friend Derek Vard's line about socialism or barbarism. You know, why not both? <laughs> right. Yeah, um, I, I don't think there's ever been a socialist country. And that seems self evident if, if you believe sure. what Menin says. Um, but I think there's been various countries uh, which yeah. are good, are good, like Cuba and so on. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that there's a, an interesting question about trying to extract definitions in general from Marx because he, he so rarely, uh, you know, he says things that you can take as definitions of various concepts, but he so rarely presents them as definitions, right? They're, they're just kind of like the thing he's saying about it. You kind of have to do some interpretive work to be yeah, like, okay. I think the interesting thing for us to talk about wouldn't necessarily be defining socialism, but in yeah. fact, defining the other thing, which is defining kind of country which is good or country which goes towards yeah. socialism or goes towards communism or whatever. Like, what, Yeah, because you could do, I mean, look, a lot of people in sort of, uh, like what I've noticed over the years is that a lot of people in the sort of Jacobin sphere do actually separate out those two things because they'll sort of like grant the thing that, you know, you wouldn't want to grant, which is that like the USSR, for example, is socialist. But they'll be like, yeah, but like not a good, not a good kind of socialism, right? Not the kind right, of I, what, I, right? Say the, I say the opposite that the USSR, <laughs> the USSR was great, it was socialist. Yeah, yeah, it's not great. <laughs> yeah. like, it's all right. Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. That's it. That's very. That's very British. I like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what, yeah. what 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 Lenin says is basically he takes Marx's concept of the lower stage of communism and he calls that socialism. Um, and the last stage of communism is where you haven't fully abolished commodity production. Well, oh, no, you, no, sorry, sorry. You have a, you have abolished commodity production, but there's still some kind of limit. And commodity production, or the regime of commodities, is, is when things are produced for the sake of being sold. Um, and yeah. capitalism is the, the, the economic system where that reigns. Um, yeah. Where you've abolished that, but there's still some limit on the flow of goods, like there's labor tokens or whatever. Right, uh, I see. Or labor vouchers or whatever. So it's, and then, it's just the first stage of communism, the particular Yeah, definition. and then the, the highest stage of, of communism is when, you know, that's yeah. communism, that's proper communism. There's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no limit on the, the flow of goods. Yeah, because I, I think part of the deal here is that, I mean, there's a sort of... Uh, Part of the defining socialism problem is really a defining capitalism problem because then because it's like what's the what is the feature of what we have now that we're calling capitalism such that if you overcame that feature you would then be and you overcame it in the right direction or whatever right you know we back to feudalism where uh, then you would you would call it uh, you would call it socialism and I think that Marx um, which is funny to say because Marx famously doesn't really like making predictions but when he does. Right, uh, end up making some predictions anyway. I think Marx uh, predicts that there's a uh, that like 
there are a bunch of things that will sort of go together, right? That there's like, so like very often when he talks about socialism, more often than not, actually, the main thing he does when he talks about it is he really emphasizes like ownership and control of the means of production, right? He, uh, he, uh, he'll, he'll say like at the end of chapter one of Capital, right? The Society of Associated Producers, you know, stuff like that. Um, so, but then like there's this, there's clearly this expectation that the, achievement of the society of associated producers of you know workers control production will march hand in hand with the end of production for you know of the end of commodity yeah, I, production i think the, um, the interesting thing the, to define would the be the end like, of the state which some people also want to throw into the definition right like a, a classless stateless society uh and then i think i think once you realize that those are those are all things that might actually be separable right like you might actually achieve one of the you know you know not separable in every direction or whatever, but like you could. Right. I, I, I sometimes think, will we ever get to the highest stage of communism? But I'm like, I don't really worry about it because the lowest stage of yeah. communism or socialism would be really great anyway. So like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I'm an American. I, I think, uh, you know, I think if I, I mean, like, like I, I have, uh, I, I, I weep tears of joy when I contemplate a scenario where we achieve like basic reforms that like they got to in Western Europe. When, when you, when you get health again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like that's like the up demands. But yeah, I think it'd be interesting to try and define like yeah. um, when when no, a state would... state is proletarian. Yeah, yeah. No, I think yeah, I think yeah. Sort sort of try to do some conceptual. Analysis. Obviously, Marx Marx thinks that the dictation of the proletarian would be transitory, and in the sense you assume that means it wouldn't be around for many years. But I think definitely. For me, at least, um, the dictation of the proletariat would, would take a while. Do, do, you yeah, know that, and, and, do you know that big quote about the French Revolution from a, a leading Chinese communist? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's too soon to say. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what yeah. I'd say about the dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, the dictatorship of the proletariat is also an interesting phrase because, like, um, because there's this concept of like a worker state, which is something I, I feel like I mostly see from people who are influenced by the Trotskyist tradition, which is um, the deformed worker state. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly, right. It's like worker state, whether deformed or undeformed, right? Which is like, um, which is this sort of often seems to be understood as a society where uh, the means of production have been expropriated from capitalists, but like at the same time, we haven't achieved socialism and what it would take to achieve socialism in these people's conception is often a little bit unclear. Uh, the, um, but like, I'm not at all clear that what those people are thinking of when they say worker state has very much to do with what Marx means on the handful of occasions where he references this concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, I think if you look at some of what Marx, uh, there's like on Marxist.org, you can find like during the faction fight with Bakunin, uh, there's like a, you can find Marx's like annotation of like some essay by, by Bakunin where he like talks a little bit about this. And uh, it's kind of funny actually, because like Bakunin says like, well, if we had the dictatorship of the proletariat, they'd end up being in like conflict with the peasant majority and, and it would, it would be awful. And, uh, and yeah, that, that, that might have happened. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, well, if you think that the Soviet Union was a dictatorship to the proletariat, that's exactly what happened, right? Or you know, right. Maoist China, whatever. So, um, 
and and Marx kind of said, "No, don't be silly. Uh, the uh, we won't. Uh, the the victorious workers wouldn't do that because they'd understand they need to preserve this like long term alliance, or whatever." I mean, and, but um, also Marx fucking hated Russia, and thought yeah. it would be the last place that ever became communist because it, the Russian army was used in eighteen forty eight to crush revolutionary movements across Europe. Yeah, and yeah, no, for sure. Believed in what Russia, I think that, kind of the the prison of nations and so on. Yeah, and I think there are places where um, Marx and Engels kind of at least flirt with the idea that Russia wasn't even like wasn't even feudal; that it was like this other thing, this like this historical dead end of Asiatic despotism that would just have to like collapse or something, so you could like restart and like get to eventually, yeah. you know, like you know, twenty steps later, you know, you get to capitalism. Uh, so yeah, yeah. luckily, they were wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, right. Yep. So uh, next week we're not going to be doing that, probably. No, next week we're not going to be doing that. Although it's an interesting idea. I have a. I also received since the last time we spoke your list of demands for future essays. So uh, I'll uh, I'll add this to the list. Uh, but uh, the the other one the other one we should do at some point for one just because we'll get lots of views is antinatalism. Antinatalism would be fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Get to uh, find some old true detective memes and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the, the downside is that I'd actually have to read some anti-natalist, but uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want to do that, but uh, I'll think about it. Um, yeah. So yeah. Next week uh, we are going to uh, so do what I was originally planned for this week. So I had uh, the original. Uh, last week, when we didn't do one of these, uh, I wrote this essay about uh, Hitchin the Philosopher, which is about Christopher Hitchin's uh, debate with William Lane Craig. Uh, and what I wrote last Sunday was the sort of negative half of that. It was like, here's why I think... Um, in fact, I actually think that in a certain way, that debate is sort of... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a less reactionary way of putting this. I'm just going to go for it. Uh, like is, is kind of an intelligence test for internet atheists that will often fail. Uh, that, uh, Cause um, they sort of, they see like. I mean, internet atheism is an amazing kind of culture in that they've invented all these moves to basically get them out, get themselves out of arguing. And that includes <laughs> the move which Hitchin makes to his great, defeat in, in, in yeah. this debate, which is to say there's no positive arguments for atheism. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Uh, so it's like, I have a, you know, so it's like the first the first essay was like, why I think that debate was such a disaster, why I don't, you know, I don't think Hitchens' is, uh, you know, responses really work, and I think it's really bad, right? <laughs> he sort of uh, gives, he sort of writes himself this permission slip not to actually give an argument for his side of the argument. Uh, and, uh, and then the second half, which I was originally going to do this week before I got distracted by mega communism was, uh, was about, um, is, is essentially about like what he should have said, right. What the better version of what he did in that debate would be like. So that's going to come out next week. It's, uh, it's a, there's a reference to, uh, uh, so, you know, like the title of that is, uh, is a, a reference to like something that like an one of the innovations of internet atheism, which I absolutely hate, which is redefining atheism as the absence 
of lack of theism. Yeah, yeah, the lack of theism. And so the title of my <laughs> yeah, exactly. The title of my essay next week is a reference is sort of a reference to why I hate that idea. It's called uh, My Dog Isn't an Atheist, but I am uh what uh, what Christopher Hitchens should have said to William Lane Craig. So uh that's coming out next week. Meanwhile, if uh for anybody who hasn't had quite enough magnetic communism today, uh in uh, this this afternoon and you know you've read the you've read my Substack essay, benburgess.substack.com. You've just watched this, but it's like, no, I, I think I still I think I still want a little bit more bag of communism talk. Uh, at uh, uh, in about an hour and a half at uh, seven o'clock Eastern. Uh, so I do this this call-in show every week, and on the call-in, uh, I've got our friend Gene Bajalot is going to be joining me, and whatever else we talk about, we're going to talk about at least a little bit of bag of communism stuff at the beginning. Well, so you, you can you can tell Gene all the facts I've told you about. Um, yes, I am. I am looking forward to passing this on to him about infinite oil and genes and so on. Oh, absolutely. Goddamnly. Uh, so if you want to actually, uh, if you want to tell me I'm full of shit about any of this uh, and do the exciting thing where you actually get to tell me with your voice, uh, that's uh, that's on uh, call-ins. You can use either the app or at this point you can, um, you can just like listen and call in from your browser in about an hour and a half. And as soon as we're done here, I'll, 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 I'll tweet out the link to that. Cool. Goodbye, everyone. Wait, I'm going to play the outro clip. So, nice. Oh, take me a second. <laughs> uh, found one.